Good evening. Good afternoon. How is everybody doing? Good. Awesome. We hope everybody that's listening to us is doing good as well. But we are continuing our study on demonology. This is part two. And uh, this is technically, I think, the third lesson that we've had. But I've divided up the study on demonology into two main sections. And the first section is the origin of the devil. And we've already covered that thoroughly. Now we are beginning part two. And because the first section took us two nights to cover, there is a possibility that we may have another lesson on demonology. We'll just see how it goes. I don't, like I said before, I don't really enjoy this subject. I don't like talking about demons. I love talking about heaven. I love talking about salvation. I love talking about those sorts of things. Uh, talking about the demonic realm is the last thing I like to talk about. However, it is mentioned in the Bible, and we need to assess biblically, you know, what is what is the data on Satan? What is the data on exorcism? How does this apply to the church? Uh, how should we deal with these sorts of issues? Because after all, I mean, there are different denominations, and they firmly maintain that spiritual warfare is supposed to look a certain way, and they have their own perspectives on the matter. And, and so we can't just say, oh, well, we're not going to have an answer to the questions. I mean, if the Bible does talk about it, then we need to discuss it. So we're looking at the whole counsel of God's word. And um, in particular, we're looking at demonology tonight. So let's talk about some questions that we're going to cover in Matthew 17. That's our main text. So if you're listening to us, that's where we're going to be. So the first question is, do demons possess people today? This is not a question really that can be answered from Matthew 17. But again, Matthew 17 is just our starting point to talk about other stuff in general. So do demons possess people today? I'll go ahead and give you my answer to that. I think yes. I think it does happen. Um, we'll talk more about why I think that in a little bit. But number two, if so, are Christians given a commission to deal with them directly and mm. cast them out? That's a different question. It's a little more nuanced. And then number three, if so, if we are commissioned in this way, when we encounter a demon, if we do, how do we recognize it before casting out? How do we diagnose, in a sense, the situation? Is this person dealing with something like schizophrenia or personality disorder? Does it have a psychological explanation or is it something spiritual? So those are some really big questions that I'm not claiming that um, I've answered them to perfection, but I think that as I've studied scripture, um, I can give some uh, biblical wisdom on the matter. Again, it's not my wisdom. It's just what I've discovered as I've studied scripture. So first, let us read Matthew 17, and we'll talk about the background here. So in Matthew 17, starting in verse number one, it talks about the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a high mountain, probably Mount Hermon. He takes Peter, James, and John, and there they see Jesus transfigured in all his glory. We had a lesson on this a while back, and I really love that lesson. I love studying it. I love talking about it. We talked about Mount Hermon. We talked about what it represents as far as the kingdom is concerned, right. uh, about the watchers in Genesis 6. Uh, Michael Heiser had a lot of really good things to say about that. His books uh, on this particular topic, I think, are very insightful. Uh, he recently passed away. Um, so if, you know, in here in this room, if y'all didn't know that, he did pass away recently, um, and so a lot of people are, you know, starting to talk about his works just because, 
you know, he did go on to be with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so I recommend some of his books. I don't agree with them on everything, but as far as Mount Hermon and the transfiguration, he had a lot of really good things to say about it. So we're not going to read about the transfiguration today, but I wanted to give you the background. Even before the transfiguration in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? One of the most famous texts in the gospel of Matthew or the whole new Testament really. And the disciples are quiet until Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you're familiar with this story, you know how it goes. He says that Peter is going to be called Peter because that means rock. And a lot of people think, well, that's Peter being established as the head of the church. Roman Catholic doctrine is based on that. Um, We talked about this when we had our study in Matthew 16, that he's called a little rock as opposed to Petra. Petra, when it says upon my Upon this rock, I will build my church. The word Petra is not the same word as Petrus, which is his name. So he's called Petra, and that relates to the other word, but it is slightly different enough to justify a different meaning. So Peter is a rock. I believe that we're all Peters in a sense. Uh, Peter even said that. He says we're living stones, and we're built up as a spiritual priesthood. But the rock, the Petra, the mountain-sized rock that the church is built on, is not one man. It's not Peter. It's built upon the gospel. It's built upon Christ. And in particular, the statement of faith that Peter makes. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what the church is based on, that faith. And so anyways, after this, Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah. Good job, Peter. However, I got to tell you something. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. They're going to put me to death. But in three days, I'm coming back from the dead. Whoa. I mean, imagine, guys, you're sitting there. You're having this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, yeah, yeah, he's the Messiah. We thought so. You confirmed it. You know, we have that that same faith that Peter does. You know, we were thinking it. He just said it. And then Jesus says, yeah, guys, but I'm going to die. I'm coming back from the dead, but I'm going to die first. So I just want you to know that that's coming. And of course, Peter does a complete flip-flop. At first, you know, he's speaking insight from God, insight from the Holy Spirit. The Father revealed that Jesus is the Christ to his heart. And now the devil is putting thoughts in Peter's mind and saying, yeah, Peter, uh, the Messiah, he can't die. That doesn't make any sense. You know, Messiahs don't die. Messiahs reign. And so Peter says, no, there's no way you're going to die. We're not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let that happen. So he gets a little bit big for his britches there until the Lord rebukes him and says, you're not speaking of the things of God. This is Satan that's inspiring these words. So after that, the transfiguration happens. I firmly believe the transfiguration was meant to instill in Peter, James, and John Mm. in particular, a faith that was hard to have in light of what he just said. I mean, he just said, I'm going to the cross. Okay. In no uncertain terms, I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to die and I'm going to come back from the dead. Now, to us, from our perspective in history, we can say, well, of course, yeah, like he's coming back from the dead. That overshadows all of the rejection. It overshadows all of the apparent defeat. It wasn't a defeat at all, really. But I mean, the resurrection kind of makes up for the fact that he, in the moment, seems to lose. We know that it was all part of God's plan for him to die on the cross, but you can imagine the defeat the disciples would have perceived in that. Mm. The resurrection was, of course, everything that they should want to hear. However, a resurrection of the Messiah just really wasn't in the cards for them. It wasn't part of the Jewish mindset at the time. So Jesus showing them his resurrected glory ahead of time, his transfigured glory, should have instilled in them confidence that, okay, all right, 
So Jesus, you said you're going to die. We still don't really like that. However, we just saw your glory. Mm-hmm. So we're confident everything's going to work out just fine. Even if we don't get it, we're confident it's all good because you're the king. We saw a taste of the kingdom. Now they got that, but at the base of the mountain, all the rest of the disciples, they didn't get that same insight, did they? And so while that's happening on the mountain, the disciples are having an encounter at the bottom of the mountain. And when Jesus and Peter, James, and John meet up with the disciples, that is when Matthew 17's account, as we're going to read, takes place. So let's read it, okay? So we're at, um, let's see, verse number 14. And they were come, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is lunatic and sore vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Now, there was a lack of faith on the part of the disciples, as he's about to say. But there's crowds there present as well. There's a multitude. So the disciples, they also struggled with faith even though they were believers and they didn't struggle to the extent that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did, the whole generation had a faith problem. And so that's something that I wanted to point out, but let's look at verse number 18. Uh, It says, Jesus rebuked the devil and he departed out of him. It was that simple. And the child was cured from that very hour. Now, before we talk about um, what we can take away from this, I do want to mention one little thing that has bothered me, at least as an individual. It mentions that this was a child. Okay, so um, does this mean that it is a normal thing um, for a child to be possessed by a demon? So that it's pretty shocking to me. You and I've had this discussion. And and so this is this is something that, um, like I said, the Bible's not in my opinion, very clear on this because the word for child here in the Greek is really up for grabs in a sense, because I I did a really intense word study on this. Okay. All the related terms to what's used here. Uh, This term can be used to refer to a teenager. It can be used to refer to someone uh, Scotty's age. Okay. And she's almost eight. It can refer to somebody who is up to nearly 20 years old. So when it says child here, we have to take into account the fact that they are a different culture. I mean, they had a hard time even respecting Jesus and he was 30 years old. Okay. And they said, you know, you're not even 50 years old yet. Now, why was, why'd they throw out 50? Because 50 was the age of what you would say, um, wisdom and respect. I mean, that was when you were well seasoned. So yes, you could begin uh, priesthood. For example, when you were 30 years old, you had to at least be 30 but you were still considered a youngster, okay, in that culture. And so how old was this person? Was this person 17 years old? Were they 10 years old? Were they 12 years old? Uh, the girl who was resurrected, by the way, you know, the right. story of Talitha Kumi, she was 12 years old, and the exact same term is applied to her. Mm. So I, I'm of the mind that uh, given that data, given the word studies that I've done, I think that it's likely that this child that was possessed had probably reached the age of accountability before Mm. this took place. I can't prove that. Okay. But based on other principles that are in scripture and the age of accountability is an imaginary. 
It is. You know we don't. I mean? we, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't believe we have a set number on that, and I'm not right. suggesting that at all. I'm just su- suggesting that I think this person was yeah. at an age where they were accountable before God and yeah. capable of getting saved. And I think that if they were saved, then this wouldn't have happened to them. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So, um, and I did find interestingly enough, just to kind of cement this idea that the term can be extended to more than just a child in our eyes, because we would think of a, you know, a child as being maybe eight, nine, 10 years old. Uh, when they're a teenager, we may not call them a child anymore. We, they're like children, honestly, but we might call them uh, teenagers instead, adolescents, mm-hmm. right? We use different terms for them. Uh, we wouldn't call an eight-year-old an adolescent. Um, but anyways, Ishmael, uh, whenever he is cast out of the family, so if you go back to Genesis, uh, when did that happen? When was he cast out? Um, and, and again, it's been a while since I've right, researched this, right, but yeah. but he was in his teen years. Yeah. At least he was at least 16 years old or around that age before he left. And the same term in Greek that's used to apply to him is the one used here. Okay. So again, whether or not this was a person who was 10 years old, 16 years old, I think one thing we can say for sure about it though, is this, it is a very tenacious demon that we're talking about here. So even if we were to suppose that this is an eight or nine year old, it's not normal Mm. for a demon to be this bold. Okay, we do know that demons, um, they have checks and balances placed on them. We know that angels do watch over children. Jesus said that. So for a demon to uh, tempt God, to test God, to test the boundary, and to indwell a child, okay, whether they're 16 or whether they're 10, Mm -hmm. okay, this was a very rebellious demon, okay? Apparently, there are some demons who wouldn't be willing to go that far because they don't want to incur the wrath of God. This demon in particular was willing to do that. Okay. Uh, But one thing we can say is that this was not hard for Jesus. And so this demon was not any more difficult than any other he had cast out. I mean, is there any struggle here even depicted? I mean, in verse 18, he rebuked the devil and he departed out of him. It's pretty simple. Okay. There was no back and forth. There was no struggle, tug of war. Jesus didn't stare strongly at the person and, and muster all of his faith. It was a simple thing because Jesus has all power. And he granted authority to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 to cast out demons. It was a particular commission that he gave to them for sure. Cast out demons. So why were they not able to cast out the demon when they were given the commission to do so? Okay. It was not a problem for Jesus. Jesus could have done it from a distance. He could have enforced their rebuke when they rebuked this demon. Even if he wasn't present, we know he wasn't present when he sent him out the first time in Matthew 10. When he sent out the 70, he wasn't present, but he enforced everything they did. So why didn't he enforce it now? Well, he tells us. So let's read that. In verse number 19, then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, again, probably a reference to Hermon since it's in the vicinity there, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting no doubt refers to a discipline. Okay, most commentators seem to acknowledge this, and I believe it makes sense as well. Um, you know, in the moment, since they were given the commission to cast out demons, I don't think that they'd say, okay, sir, uh, we'll take care of your son. Just give us a minute. Okay. We're going to go over here and fast for a couple days and then we'll deal with it. I think prayer and fasting is probably preparatory. 
And most commentators see it that way, that they had been a little bit lazy as far as their authority to cast out demons is concerned. They were given that authority. They had initial success. They had no problems. I mean, when they first started casting out demons, there was no real opposition. The demons fled in the, you know, at the name of Jesus. And so now they're expecting the same result. However, between the time where they were having success in the beginning and now time had elapsed and they had let their guard down spiritually to where the faith that they should have had, they didn't have, Mm. you know, y'all know, I just got back from Taekwondo. Okay. There are kids who they should be further along than they are. I can remember one time being in a testing and there was a person testing for their black belt and they could not do the basics. And it was, and it was, I was testing, uh, I was testing them along with a senior instructor who was, you know, higher ranked than me. Now he asked me what my opinion was. And my opinion was don't give them their black belt. They have not earned it. Like they can't even do a front kick. If they tried kicking like that and in a real self-defense situation, it wouldn't do no good. But he said, well, their parents already paid for their belt and paid for the test and they pay their tuition And I'm like, so we're just handing him out now. And I didn't say that to him because he was a friend and I respected him, but that I was a little frustrated because it's not a test unless it's real. Okay. Right. But in in a similar sense, like the disciples should have been black belts in their faith at this point, because they had the best instructor in the world and they were around him and they saw more miracles than anybody else did because they were constantly with him in his ministry. So what kind of faith should they have had? Well, there is a, a verse here that I think gives us some insight. So go with me, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew 9, verse number 27. Matthew 9, verse number 27. It says right here, When Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy. Sorry, I lost my place here in the dark. Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came unto him and Jesus saith unto them, believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto him, yea, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus straightly charged them saying, see that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. Now notice what he asked them. He says, believe ye that I am able That is so key. Believe ye that I am able. And then he says, according to your faith, be it unto you. So they believe that he was able. Now, why would the disciples lack that kind of faith? Why would they lack that kind of faith? Why should they question the ability of Jesus to cast out this demon from a distance? Jesus was not with them at this point. He's up on uh, Mount Hermon or he's coming down at the time. That's when they have this encounter with the man and his son. They attempt to cast out the demon. Initially, it appears that there was resistance from the demon, and they were surprised by that. They probably tried again, and this time their faith was probably weaker because the demon didn't listen the first time. They're trying to rely on themselves. That's right. And And they question in their minds. They question, wait a second. What if Jesus isn't able? That was the problem. Now, why would they question that? Again, they saw all these miracles, but we have to understand something about the disciples, which we often don't think about. 
they saw Jesus get tired too. They saw Jesus sleep. They saw him get hungry and need to eat. They saw him get thirsty and need to drink. Okay. And while he did miracles often, okay, Jesus didn't do miracles every single hour. Okay. I would say they're probably punctuated parts of his ministry. So there were times where they were tempted to look at Jesus and to see who Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. son of Mary, son of Joseph. He's just like us. And in a sense he was, he's fully human, right? But guys, imagine what you would think if you saw him in person and, and you saw those moments that seem so contradictory. One minute he's casting out demons like nothing. And another moment he's having to take a nap because he's exhausted. And then he ends up throwing a wrench in everything because you're like, oh, okay, well, I'll try to ignore that because that's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around. But then Jesus comes along and says, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. It's like, what? Jesus, that doesn't make no sense. I mean, yeah, even though he followed it up with the resurrection, it's still like you are saying you're going to let the authorities take you alive and then kill you. You can imagine why they'd be having doubts. I mean, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, there was this psychological phenomenon, guys, where I think they were back and forth, back and forth. You know, we had this idea that once you make that choice to believe, like you're stuck in it and it just doesn't change, it doesn't waver, uh, it's something that you have to nurture. And and when you look at John chapter two, whenever they performed the miracle at Cana, it says his disciples believed in him. Mm -hmm. That was genuine. They really believed in him. And that's probably when they got saved. It was very Mm -hmm. early in their ministry. But from that point on, how many times do we see them saying, who is this? Who is this man? Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus, God forbid, there's no way you're going to die. Okay. You're like, that doesn't line up with the fact that you believe. Because again, it's not just this monolithic thing where you believe and then there's just, just not going to be no change from that point on. You have to develop a faith. It's a spiritual discipline. Now, they were saved the moment they first had that faith. That's the promise. That's the covenant of God. When you believe you receive his gift and it's good, it's everlasting. But if they were going to accomplish God's purpose for them, they needed a stronger faith than what they had. Even if their names were already written in heaven, they would not have success in their miraculous ministry until they invested in prayer and fasting. They had to be thinking every day about what Jesus was teaching them every single day, thinking about the miracles that he performed listening to him instead of doubting him instead of saying well Jesus I don't know about this whole death thing his death and resurrection thing they needed to listen and trust what he had to say even if it was hard to do and then when they faced obstacles like demons in their ministry they would be able to go before that demon and not doubt the authority of the name they were using whenever they said in the name of Jesus be gone so that's the kind of faith that they were to have a lot of people think the faith that's necessary to work miracles and this is a whole movement which I think is is an error it's faith in your faith it's faith in the power of your faith. It becomes you. It becomes man-centered. And that's exactly what the disciples were doing here. They were trusting in themselves instead of trusting in Jesus, and they failed. Mm. They needed to trust in the object, which is Christ. Now, the difference between then and now, and this is something we're about to talk about, is they were given a special commission to cast out demons. All right? We don't have that general commission. I challenge anybody, read the Bible, look at the Great Commission. It does not tell us to cast out demons. In the letters of Paul, he never gives us instructions on how to cast out demons. I'm not saying that it can't be done. I'm not saying that it hasn't been done. Okay? So let me make that clear. I'm just saying that we are not told to go out, preach the gospel of the kingdom like the disciples did, and cast out demons. Okay? We're not called to do that. So what are we called to do? Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is salvation is a free gift based on 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And after that, we need to disciple people by teaching them the word of God and making sure the first step is baptism. Like that's our commission. So anything that adds to that, you're starting to wrongly divide the word of God. So that's the first thing we need to bear in mind that we don't have that general commission. The second thing we got to be careful about is assuming the demons can do the exact same thing they did in the first century. I, I do firmly believe the demons are active today, but it was a unique time period. And that makes us wonder, are they able to do all the same things that they do today? Okay. That's an assumption. Okay. And we got to be careful about assumptions, obviously. So uh, in Matthew 12, 28, Jesus says, but if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Now we've talked about the kingdom of God a million times in our studies. He's clearly talking about something special. He's present among them. He's the king. He's offering the kingdom. He's not doing that today. Can't travel to Israel and say, where's Jesus of Nazareth? Okay. He's in heaven now. Okay. Even his apostles have passed on. They have no successors. And the gospel of the kingdom ceased being preached in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the Jews were temporarily cast off. So there was a special thing about exorcism in Jesus's day um, that it seems to be non-repeatable. Again, I'm not saying that demons aren't cast out today. I just don't know if it's the exact same nature and all the details. I'm not claiming to know them. Okay. Uh, This is going beyond what is written to start saying things with clarity that the Bible doesn't make clear, you know, so I don't want to do that, but I'm just saying it's assumption. We have to be careful when we're talking about this stuff. We need to be careful that we don't assume, okay, well, it happened in Jesus' ministry, so it happens today, just as it did then. Well, that's not necessarily true, so just be careful about that. You may be right, you may be wrong, just watch how you interpret the Bible. A third, even if demons possess people today, and I think that they probably can, okay, so I'll state that for the record, our approach will not necessarily be the same as that of the apostles. I mean, even the disciples were humbled for a time to illustrate that all power comes from the Lord and not from themselves. So how would we approach it? Um, Well, in Jude 9, this is a really good verse, I think, that Mm -hmm. pertains to this. Um, We know for a fact that they were given the commission to cast out demons. Well, the archangel Michael was given a commission too. And in the course of fulfilling that commission, he encountered a demon. In fact, the arch demon, the devil himself. In Jude 9, it says, Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. He dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. So what happens? Okay, well, we don't know exactly this story in all of its fullness um, because we don't have the record today. It was called the Assumption of Moses and It has to do with what happens to Moses's body after he dies. So apparently Michael was charged with either guarding the body of Moses or burying the body of Moses. Some people even think that he took the body of Moses to heaven. So that way it would be prepared for later on for the end times, whenever um, he comes back with Elijah. Yeah. And he was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. And so uh, whatever exactly he was doing, we don't know, but we know that ancient Christians had access to this book. And so they give us a little bit of detail about the story. But the idea is that Michael was specifically commissioned for what purpose? To, in some way, guard the body of Moses as its custodian. Well, in the process of doing that, the devil comes along. Okay, He didn't seek out the devil. The devil sought him out. 
And the devil disputed with Michael and said, I have a right to his body. Exactly how he argued that. I don't know, but he argued that he had a right to take the body. And Michael, instead of railing against him and saying, oh, you stupid devil, I'll I'll take you on right now. You want to fight? (laughs) Instead of dealing with the devil in that irreverent manner, he simply says, I'm not going to deal with you. The Lord rebuke you. He, He dealt with the devil by taking the whole issue and saying, my commission is the body of Moses. You're interfering with that. God deal with you which is essentially him appealing to God in prayer. God, I know you hear me. This is the devil. He's interfering with my mission. Deal with him. And he passed it off to God. And we know, okay, that based on Jude chapter nine, okay. And based on information we have about this story outside the Bible, uh, the devil left him. Okay. Just like the devil left Jesus when he tempted him in the wilderness. So I think that gives us a pattern. I think that whenever, if ever, we were to encounter a situation where we were firmly uh, convicted and we were convinced that what we saw was demonic. I think that we have a hard, I think I would have a hard time being convinced 100%. Um, I, I second guess things myself. It's my nature, but I also don't want to wound someone psychologically by suggesting that they're possessed by a demon when they might not be. Uh, I would probably just err on the side of caution and take my concerns to God and say, God, don't, don't leave this person in their horrible situation because I'm not sure about this. Okay. So I would just pray to God and, and I believe God would handle it. But in that situation, the way that we would handle the casting out of a demon would be giving it to God as, as Michael did and praying in God's name and in his authority. Like if this is a demon God, and I'm pretty sure that it is, I I get that feeling that it is. I got the Holy spirit tingling in a sense. I'm asking that you will deliver this person. So that's how I would handle that situation. And I believe God uh, would honor that. I just believe, I I believe that because he honors prayers today. Now, if it didn't happen immediately and in an extravagant manner, I wouldn't necessarily doubt my faith if I had faith. Okay. If I believed in the authority of God, uh, because we don't really have the same problem. I think that the disciples had, because we have all this information that they don't have. Like they were in the middle of the ministry they hadn't seen, at least all the disciples, okay, had not seen the transfiguration, only three. Um, they hadn't had the benefit of the resurrection yet because it hadn't happened, okay? And so we have all of the evidence. We have all the information today. Do we have any reason to doubt the power of Jesus? None at all. And so I, I believe, I generally believe that, uh, that God has the ability to cast out demons. So in a situation, if I prayed with that faith, as I would, um, I wouldn't doubt my faith I would simply say, all right, God, this is, this is on you now. And if it didn't happen in the way I expected, perhaps I would say, well, maybe it wasn't demonic. Uh, maybe God's going to heal this person in his own time. Uh, but again, this is in my opinion, uh, immediate position, um, uh, or, uh, a middle position. There are some people who they're just so far over here in the cessationist camp that they would not even uh, entertain the idea that demon possession happens today. I know people that I respect. I've read their books. I think they have a lot of good things to add, uh, to theology, but I disagree with them on this. They just don't think it happens today. And I think they're wrong. Then there are people that are so far over on the other side that if they were in a situation where they believed it was demonic and they cast the demon out in the name of Jesus and nothing happened, it would destroy their faith because they would think it was all their fault. And so I think that both are errors. Um, so let's talk about, let's go back to this real quick. 
So let's talk about this faith that they had. Um, what was the object or rather the focus of their faith in Matthew 17? Because it talks about the mountain being moved. How many times? I know, Matt, you got people in your life. Oh, they man. say that I was so many times. I was going to bring it up. I hear this all the time. I love my brother dearly, but he's, you know, the book. Uh, the secret. The secret. And, and this verse is always brought up. It's brought up by pastors in the movie about the secret and in the book itself. And, and it's always taken so out of context. Um, and, you know, I don't even know if my brother knows that this context is about a boy being healed. You yeah. know what I mean? I yeah. Yeah. It's just that one verse, right? It's just that one verse. That one verse. So we got to be careful about taking a verse out of context. But what exactly did he commission them to do? He commissioned them to work miracles. Now, if Jesus told me, buddy, I'm giving you authority to heal people. I'm giving you authority to cast out demons. Like there's, there's no if, ands, or buts about it. This is exactly what I'm telling you to do. In addition to preaching the gospel, I want you to do these things too. Well, then what would be the focus of my faith miracles because that's what he told me to do right i mean that's what he told me he was going to accomplish through me rather and so the disciples did they doubt that god had commissioned them to cast out this demon no they didn't doubt that it wasn't the doubting of the commission they knew exactly what they were supposed to do it was simply why didn't it happen it didn't happen because they weren't trusting in the power of christ and why did they not trust in the power of Christ? Because they had doubts about his identity. Now, again, this was doubt. This wasn't outright unbelief, guys. I mean, this wasn't like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who said, like, this guy's definitely a blasphemer. They were not in that camp. Mm -hmm. But they did have questions, especially, let's imagine you have family members and friends mm -hmm. who are constantly saying, the guy you're following is out of his mind. Mm -hmm. He's a blasphemer. And if you follow him, you know, you're going to wind up probably being incriminated too. Huh? Tall spirited one. <laughs> You're following a cult leader is what a lot of people no doubt were saying about Jesus. And so imagine you have all these people that you trust and you love. They're telling you this. Now you've seen the power of Jesus and you've believed his words. Like he's spoken to you and you accepted those. But now it's like, I got all my friends telling me this and, and uh, man, Jesus is saying some stuff that doesn't make sense. And it's like, yeah, well, if Jesus was all powerful and if he was, if he was the King of Kings, then why would he get tired? And why would, you know, why doesn't he bring the kingdom right now? And why would there be a need for him to die? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Mm. And they're dealing with things that are just so obvious to us today, but were not obvious to them at the time. And so, again, they doubted his identity. They were like, part of me believes that he's the Messiah, but part of me is like, I'm not sure. And when you face a demon with that kind of faith, is Jesus going to honor it? Not if he's going to teach you a lesson, which is what he was trying to do to the disciples. Of course, he wasn't going to leave this child in this state. He loved this child and he had every intention of dealing with the problem himself because the disciples failed. That's why I believe that if I was in a situation, let's say there was a person who was possessed by a demon and it was a problem of my faith. Let's say I had doubts about the identity of Christ. I don't, but let's say I did and I could not approach that demon and cast it out. My faith was just so weak and God wasn't going to honor that for some reason. Okay. Um, do I believe that he would have his hands tied? That there'd be no way this person could be freed because it was my fault? No. And I wouldn't say, well, find somebody else who's better than me. 
because Jesus didn't need anybody else here, did he? He cast out the demon himself. So I believe that this person was left in their condition only for a very short amount of time, by the way, just so that way the disciples could learn a lesson. And I have no doubt that they look back on this later in life and they indeed did learn their lesson that it wasn't about, it wasn't about their power. It's about the power of the almighty Christ. And, and that's why later on in their ministry, after the resurrection, we don't see them entertaining doubts about who Jesus is. We don't see them having doubts like this anymore because now the resurrection has sealed the deal. They're absolutely sure that Jesus is not just a Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's God incarnate. He has all power. And so we don't see any more hiccups like this. So they did learn their lesson. And we, of course, have the benefit of God's word. So we learn from it as well. We're going to talk about healing on Friday. And I do believe that to see answers to your prayer, you need two factors. Two. One, you need faith. Yes, I believe God honors faith. And I believe if you approach God with zero faith, you're doubting him. Then I believe that God sometimes will grant your prayer just because he's a gracious God. But I believe sometimes he'll withhold his answer. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that because he's trying to test you so you can be an obedient child and grow. However, let's say you're an obedient child and you're mature in your faith and you give that prayer to God with that faith. Doesn't guarantee that you're going to get what you want. No, when my kids are obeying me, and they come to me and they ask me for a request, perfectly reasonable request. They've been obedient. I have no reason to punish them or withhold from them. But sometimes I say, honey, that I can't do that right now. And I got a good reason. Now, hopefully my kids, when I respond that way, and as parents, you understand, sometimes you have to tell them no, don't you? And it's not that they've done anything wrong. You just got to tell them no. So let's say you tell them no. Sometimes what are they tempted to do? Did I do something wrong? Was it me? Have I, have I disobeyed you? Somebody? No, honey, I'm, you have not disobeyed me. You've done well, but I just can't, I'm not going to do that right now because I've got another plan. And then they might say, but why? I, I want to know. And sometimes you can give them an answer and sometimes you can't. Sometimes you say, I can't tell you right now. You're not old enough yet. One day I'll tell you. And so that's the life of faith. So I do believe that faith is a critical prerequisite to seeing God answer prayer. I do believe that. Uh, just like if someone was to call out upon the name of the Lord for salvation and they just said the words, but they didn't have faith, are they going to get the answer to their prayer if they don't have faith? Let's say someone just says the words because, oh, my friend's walking down the aisle and they're saying the prayer. Well, they're genuine, but this person's not. And they just go through the words. They say the words. They are in the statement addressed to God, but they don't actually believe what they're saying. Well, is God going to honor that prayer? No, he's not. You have to have the faith. So how? So a lot of people I know that are in the continuationist camp or even in the secret camp, yeah. they might counter with, you know, Jesus oftentimes says your faith has made you well. Mm -hmm. And just like, you know, we talked about the blind men earlier. Yes. Of, you know, do you have, I don't want to misquote them, but do you have faith that I can do this? Yes. You know, how would, how do we respond to that? Yeah. And again, when Jesus says your faith has made you well, he's saying that your faith was key in getting me to give you this healing. I, I, he gives them the healing after asking them the question first. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Right. Okay. And if they would have said, no, I don't. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't have even happened. That scenario wouldn't have taken place because why would they approach Jesus for healing yeah, if they didn't believe? Sense. Right. But I mean, he's like, he's making sure. Do you believe? And they're like, yes. He's like, okay. Now. He already knows that they believe. That's, that's right. Of course. But um, let's. 
let's use a counter example, a counter to the counter, if you will. Um, when Paul goes to God and asks him to remove the thorn in the flesh, did he have faith? Did Jesus rebuke him and say, you don't have enough faith, Paul? No, he said, I'm using this right now to teach you something, Paul. You're going to experience my grace in a greater way because of this. He does not say that he doesn't have enough faith. He's saying, I want you to experience me in a deeper way. And that was an example of saying no, not because your prayers are unheard, not because I'm ignoring you because of some perceived doubting or lack of faith, but because I've got another purpose in mind. And so that's a key example. So, I mean, I'm all about, I firmly believe that, you know, saying words, saying prayers and, and doubting God and not believing God can do something. Yeah. God's not going to honor that prayer unless maybe he'll answer your prayer, not because you prayed it, but because somebody else was praying it. Okay. Let's say two people are praying a prayer. It has to do with the same thing. Heal this person. One person has the faith. The other person doesn't have the faith. Well, God may answer the prayer and that person may be healed, but it's not because the unbelieving Christian asked the prayer. It's because the believing Christian did it and he honored that. Okay. Or maybe he heals the person, even though nobody's got the faith, nobody's praying with faith, but he loves this person. He's going to heal him directly. All right. So the point that I'm trying to make is God is sovereign, All right? He doesn't operate according to what we want him to do or what we think we can make him do. We can force his hand with enough faith. Faith is necessary but faith will never determine what God does. It will only be an influence to his will. We can't influence the will of God in the sense of giving him what he has asked for. He's asked for faith and he's made a covenant with us that if we ask for faith, okay, that's necessary for him to respond to our prayer favorably. But again, there are some times where we don't know exactly what to ask for, right? And if we did, we wouldn't ask for that prayer. If we knew that God had some plan over here, we wouldn't even bother asking God. We wouldn't say, God, change your will for me because we would know. But here's the thing. Do we know God's will perfectly? We, of course, do not. And we become more sensitive to God's will the more we grow in our faith. But we'll still never know God's will perfectly. I don't think I'm anywhere near Paul in terms of spiritual maturity. But Paul was asking multiple times for something that God said, no, it's not good for you, Paul. And, and, and Paul wasn't taking the hint either until God directly revealed it to Paul. Take away this thorn. Take away this thorn. Take away. He would not stop until eventually God said, Paul, it's not the right thing for you. Okay. You're not sinning against me. I love you, but I've got another plan. And he actually revealed the plan to Paul in a general sense. And so, um, so uh, the focus of the disciples faith was, was necessarily miracles while we're not given the same commandment. In fact, I love, I would encourage you, I'm not going to read it, but Matthew pulls commentary. They're, they're just jewels in these older expositors guys. Uh, I don't agree with them on everything. Matthew pulls eschatology is terrible. Uh, his views about the end times, but he has a lot of really good things to say on other things. For example, in this passage, he notes that when Jesus is talking about the faith, being able to move mountains, one, he is speaking as a Semitic speaker often does in hyperbole. Jesus often used hyperbole. What would be the purpose of moving a mountain? What's the benefit of healing or, or of moving a mountain? There's benefit in healing. There's benefit in casting out demons. I don't think Jesus is encouraging them to go around rebuking mountains and asking them to move out of their place. All right. It is hyperbole. He's saying that that seems crazy big. It seems crazy outrageous in terms of uh, what could be done. You could do things like that. Okay. If you had this faith because he had given them a commission to do miracles. Alyssa, do you have a question? Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt that uh, God does move mountains in that sense all the time. Absolutely. Um, and, and like I said, we should have that same kind of faith that God can do those things. The difference between us and them, though, and this is the key that I'm trying to, to press home, is they were told to work miracles. And I'm not. That's really what it comes down to. And the only way a, continuous, a continuationist can get away with saying that we do have the same authority is if they apply what is said about the apostles to themselves. So this, yes. So yes. So, and of course they do that. (laughs) That's why many in the continuationist camp will call themselves prophets and apostles, thus eliminating the problem in their minds. And I'm not going to rehash all of what we've talked about. We've discussed the gift of apostleship and the prophetic gift before. And I, I think I've demonstrated well enough that those gifts have ceased. So if you can demonstrate that, then again, they're tied into the miraculous ministry. Um, so now let's move on. Um, another thing. This is a big one. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 6.3. 1 Corinthians 6.3. And I, I think that we're going to leave one of the biggest questions for next week. Yeah, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 3. The big question that I'm talking about or referring to is, can Christians be demon-possessed? I emphatically say no. However, if you want me to prove that, I I think it justifies a lesson to go into the verses that pertain to that. But uh, we'll deal with that next time. So 1 Corinthians 6, 3, read that for us, Matt. Okay. It says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Very good. Judge the angels. That's one of the most enigmatic texts in the Bible. Like it's weird. Judge the angels. And when someone reads that, they just kind of sometimes skip over things. I'll come back to that later. I've done that before. I'll just come back to that later because I don't get that. So what does judge the angels mean? Well, it means that one day, and this is the most general explanation. I'm not saying this is all that's involved in it, but one day we will at least be in a higher position than the angels. The Bible's 100% clear on that. Um, and I think a lot of Christians are completely ignorant of the fact because they don't realize what their inheritance is. They don't realize what the image of God is. Uh, in fact, um, I read a Catholic article not too long ago that said, oh yeah, angels are made in God's image just like we are. And I was like, no, no, they're not. I mean, have you read Hebrews chapter one and Hebrews in general has a lot of problems for Catholic theology for that matter. But anyways, not getting into that. The point that I'm trying to make is, um, we have that special inheritance that one day will be fulfilled in us reigning over the world. Okay. We'll have dominion just like Adam and Eve were originally given and angels will be a step down from us in the sense that they will not be given the same authority in the eternal state in the new heaven, the new earth than we are now, how this is fleshed out. I don't know. So don't ask me. I mean, (laughs) uh, I I don't uh, agree with all of Mormon theology, but I do agree at least in this sense they're wrong in so many things. So I even hesitate to agree with them on, on this, uh, because if I agree with them on this one thing that people are going to think I agree with them on other things and I don't, okay. Mormonism is, is heresy, but, um, the idea that we will rule, that is a very important theme in scripture that's neglected. And the reason it's neglected is because it's confusing and we don't know all the details. So I get that, but just because we don't know the details doesn't mean we shouldn't affirm what the Bible says. 
And uh, 1 Corinthians 6.3 tells us that we will judge the angels. This might mean that when God casts the angels into the lake of fire, in some way, Christians will be present as witnesses. Mm. We'll be like the jury. And, and, and just as you have a judge and a jury, whenever you're pronouncing a sentence, some interpreters believe that Christians will be the jury. We are also the body. Yes, the right. body of Christ, right? right? Yeah. And uh, since we are in Christ and he's the firstborn over all creation, we participate in his authority in a limited sense. I'm, we're sure. finite beings, right? I mean, Absolutely. we'll never be the eternal son of God. But um, the point that I'm trying to make is we're not judging angels now. Paul doesn't say we're doing it presently. He says one day we will. And he says you should practice that authority by settling matters among yourselves <laughs> because you have a more exalted thing that you're going to be doing one day. Uh, and again, it's tantalizing. We don't know all of what uh, that involves, but the disciples were granted some of that authority ahead of time. I mean, they really were. I mean, and that's why in the ministry of Jesus, he did miracles that did what? They announced the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Freedom from death. Mm -hmm. So people came back from the dead. Mm -hmm. It's the curse being removed. So people were delivered from their sicknesses mm -hmm. and their illnesses. Um, angels will be judged. Um, and even the good angels will have a lower position and I hate to say that. I hope the angels don't get offended when I say that. I don't think they, they do. But uh, they, we will one day come into our inheritance. And I think that they'll rejoice in that. Um, and those are all things that we get a taste of when we read about these kingdom miracles. But again, the kingdom was closer then than it is now in the sense that all it took for the kingdom to come then was, according to Jesus, the repentance of the Jewish people. Of course, they didn't do it. Right. So it didn't come. And in a sense, it was very far away because God and his eternal counsel knew it wasn't going to happen. But it was close as far as they were concerned. And the miracles were to show this is a real offer that's being made. Like this is a taste. It's like when you go to the food court in the mall. As a kid, I used to love to go around and just get the samples. You know, it's like this is a taste of what's to come. You have some sesame chicken right here. Take a bite. You can buy this whole play. <laughs> uh, and so the kingdom miracles that were performed 2000 years ago. Uh, and even during the Acts period, they were a sample of what's to come. Uh, but to say that we are continually experiencing all of those same things is to misunderstand the timing of that offer. And if you want to know more about that, uh, we're not going to hash that out here. We're already wrapping up a study on that very thing. We've basically come to the close of it. We've got one more lesson that I want to talk about concerning James 5. So some of y'all are listening to this are like, what about James five? You need to get out your anointing oil, yeah. gather the elders of the church and it's going to happen. It'll, you know, if you have that faith, then you'll see healing done. So that's a really important passage. I don't want to ignore that. I mean, it, I would be kind of bothered if someone wrote a whole book on the nature of healing and they ignored James chapter five. So I can't really have a whole series on healing and not mention it. So we'll talk about that next time. Uh, but again, it all ties back into the kingdom and theocracy and you know, one's view of the end times too. Uh, so anyways, we will stop there because I do want to talk more about the idea of Christians being demon possessed. To me, that's such a big one. Like there are people who I've talked to young people. They ask this question all the time. Uh, there is a perceived increase in demonism, even by people who don't fully understand it. Kids who watch these movies and, and they see paganism on the rise and maybe they don't believe in Jesus, but when they come to CLC and they hear me talking about demons and Satan, there's something, maybe it's the conviction of the Holy spirit. 
they know there's truth to it. it and so did, Rapture Ready did a um an article. I, I forget which one of them did it, but you know they are they, they had their articles like the two articles. Yeah. Every week, and he t- he was saying that the Satan worship stuff that's going on now, a lot of it, it's not that they're worshiping the same Satan. They don't consider the Satan of the Bible of what they're worshiping. They're just they're want to be the absolute antichrist in a sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they don't believe in any of it, so they yeah, think yeah, yeah. that that's what they're going to worship. Yes, it, it, it was an interesting article. I suggest it, you read it. Yeah. And and Satanism, and you're right. There's there's theistic Satanism. Yes, theistic Satanism is what we would literally think of as true Satanism. Yes, and uh, there are some. Yes. But those people wouldn't be theistic in the sense that they believe in an all-powerful God. If they believed that God was all-powerful, they wouldn't believe that Satan could win. Right. So they would redefine Lucifer to be a, a a God himself who is a being of light and beauty and liberation. They would portray God as the tyrant. Yeah. But they wouldn't deny that there is there is a being. Much like the, that TV show. Yes. That did, right? That, That's right. Yeah. They wouldn't deny that there's a God of the Bible, they just wouldn't agree with what he says about himself. They'd right. say, God wrote that book. Okay. He's yeah. a, ty- he's a tyrant. He's a liar. Okay. So when he says he's all powerful and the devil's going to lose and the right. devil's really a bad guy. No, that's, that's fake news. So that's how theistic Satanists would argue it. I think that will be the end times religion. Yeah. I mean, they're going to worship the dragon and they're going to yeah. know what they're doing. Uh, but the fact that we're becoming more accustomed to the satanic imagery, mm. even through the atheistic version, um, it, it's setting the stage for sure. And, Absolutely. and like I said, when these students, they come to me, they, they ask this question often, can Christians be demon possessed? Uh, in fact, today I did question answer for one of my classes and I didn't get to it, but that question was submitted mm. Can Christians be demon possessed. And so it's a fear, you know, it's scary stuff. I mean, they watch these horror movies that are so popular and they fill their minds with it. Mm. And like I said, they know deep down that there's truth to it. So they, they have to ask the question they want to know. And, uh, of course, you know, the most important thing is the gospel. You know, you shouldn't worry about demon possession as much as you should worry about where you're going to spend eternity. Right. But I mean, it is, it is a concern. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I don't deny that. And, uh, I wouldn't be bothered by the prospect Mm -hmm. if I didn't know that I have the Holy spirit indwelling me and keeping me safe. So anyways, we'll talk about that because there are many Christians of the Pentecostal persuasion that would strongly disagree with me. I even had a debate with a fella. Um, he visited uh, where I work. Really, really nice guy. And um, he had some differing views than me on this particular topic. Mm. And uh, and so it was like, wow, I'm kind of surprised that you believe that. But, you know, so, I mean, this is not something that I, it's not heresy to disagree with me on this, but um, I think that it does. It does affect the way that you live out your faith. If you live in fear of demons possessing you, that's going to definitely make you stagnant in your faith, I believe. So we'll talk about that next time. And as always, if you have any questions, just, uh, you know, shout out to us, email us, comment on our podcast, whatever. We won't answer, but you can do that. We'll try to get to it eventually. All right. We love y'all. Good night.